listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 126. In this episode, we bring you voices from the Carrier Factory. That's right, the Trumpian icon of the American working class that everyone seems to have something to say about, but no one seems to be hearing the workers who are on the inside. But first, the news. Workers at Tomcat Bakery, New York City's most established artisanal bake shop, want you to cut the carbs today to protect workers' rights from Donald Trump's deportation drive. April 21st is a deadline that their employer and Homeland Security have arbitrarily set for producing the so-called right papers for work authorization in the U.S., even though many of them have been working there peacefully for the last 10 plus years, their employer is suddenly being audited by ICE. Hmm, could it be because this is a notoriously militant group of workers who have been known to hold monumental workplace justice campaigns? I wonder. In any case, the rubber is about to hit the road on April 21st, and they are asking New Yorkers across the city to stand in solidarity with them, or rather, sacrifice a little bit of dough to feed the resistance movement against Trump. This is all in the lead-up to the May 1st Day Without Immigrants strike, which promises to be one of the largest nationwide direct actions uh, since 2006. And the legal case uh, is still precarious for these workers, but they hope that by going public about their struggle, they will show that uh, New York is on their side and that they will be protected uh, from Trump And um, as a so-called sanctuary city, New York will try to do its best to shield it from ICE's talons. They are emblematic of a broader trend across the United States. There's been a sharp rise in arrests of immigrants without criminal records uh, reported in the New York region. But they're still going strong, protesting all the way through the big May Day strikes and beyond. And even if they lose their jobs, they vow to keep mobilizing their communities to secure workers' rights and human rights for migrants in this city. Here's Hector, one of the bakery workers, speaking at a rally earlier this month in front of Trump Tower. How long have you been with Tom? Uh, 12 years. Okay. Has it changed a lot since the election? Yeah, it changed a lot. What, what is it about it that's changed, do you think? Oh, because you know, they start with all this movement, with the people, with the immigrants, with the, with the immigrant people. Yeah. And, you know, they try to stop what we're doing, they try to separate with the families, so it's very hard right now. But at, at work, does it feel different to you? Uh, yeah, I don't feel the way I feel before because it's not really easy because we just give us extension I mean they give us 10 days first uh, because we stand together with my co-workers so we start at 5, we march in front of the company Yeah. so we get a 20 days more extension but what, what happens in 20 days? So I mean I don't know what's going to happen because we we don't have enough time to prove that we can work in this country. Yeah. There's nothing I can do because, I mean, to be honest, 
it's not it's gonna be very hard for me and my family yeah i worked there for a long time i give part of my life i worked 12 years yeah. and it's not gonna be easy start from the beginning How, um what do you do there i'm a, i work in the oven area i cook the bread okay do you like it there otherwise except for the yeah stuff? i love to do my job i try to do my job the best i can every day um, well you guys have been struggling way before this happened right i mean tomcat you guys are protesting your conditions there have things improved with each campaign that you've done with brand workers and just yeah I mean, we said to with over the work. past few years you struck before right and yeah so did that make any progress at the place? yeah it was did you ever like because it was so hard there did you ever think like i give up or just gonna find a new place uh, I mean, we, this is why we are here to fight. Uh, we're gonna be, we're gonna stay together with brand workers and my co-workers. So we just start the fight. I know it's not gonna be easy, it's a long journey, but are you scared when you go to work every day? Yeah, I'm scared because, like I say, it's not it's not easy. But the company compromised to protect us until we, I mean, to see what will happen. What do you think about your boss that he would just do something like that? No, I was really surprised. I never expect this is going to happen. I hear, you know, because it's not it's not just right here, it's all around all around the country. Mi nombre es Patricia James. Defensora del pueblo. And I'm here today to say to say it loud and to say it clear that immigrants and refugees are welcome here. Say it loud. Public advocate Leticia James giving a piece of her mind to the president at Trump Tower. You can do your part by donating to their legal defense fund or just shelling out a little bit less dough on dough to feed the resistance. Belabored guest Sarah Chambers has joined us to discuss the battle for Chicago's public schools in the past in episode 113 most recently, and now that battle has become very personal. Chambers is now fighting for her job, and as she tells us, she is not the first activist teacher and member of the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators to be targeted. As we're talking, it's Tuesday, and you just came from a rally in support of you. Tell our listeners what's going on. 
So I found out the day before spring break through email that CPS, the Chicago Public School District, um, and ROM's appointed Board of Education had suspended me. So meaning that I can't return to school right now, and the, the letter gave no explanation whatsoever. So, you know, I was in complete shock. Um, I've never been disciplined before. I've been rated distinguished by every single administrator. So I was just very shocked and angry at them for, you know, hurting my special education students. Is there any reason that they've given? No, I mean, they've given no reasons whatsoever in writing. And that's it's, mm. that's what's ridiculous. I'm staying here at home while my students are sitting in classes with no help, and they're giving me no explanation as to why I'm suspended. You know, I've, I've been working eight years as a special education teacher, but although they've given me no reasons, we know truly what the reasons are because they're trying to silence me as, you know, as a union activist, as a strong advocate for special education, and just, you know, an advocate against Rom's agenda, against his mm -hmm. privatization agenda and neoliberal agenda in Chicago. Yeah. And there's been a history of, of uh, strong union activists within the CTU getting disciplined and fired, correct? Oh, yeah. They've gone after a lot of our Chicago activists. I don't know if you know Tim Megan. Um, mm -hmm. He's a teacher activist who's running for alderman. And right after he ran for alderman, they laid him off. <laughs> um, you know, Sheehan Barrett, another you probably see him a lot on social media. He's been mm -hmm. targeted and laid off multiple times. So, yeah, they, they try to silence people who speak against them and try to scare other teachers not to speak out. Yeah. Um, so you obviously have not stopped speaking out. Um, tell us a little bit about the rally that was today. So I actually was not there because yeah. I am not allowed to be on board property. I was there through social media, um, but everyone uh -huh. was sharing pictures with me and told me it was phenomenal that, you know, there were hundreds of people there. Um, Chewy Garcia, you know, he's the one who ran for mayor against Ram was there. A lot of community organizations, students, parents spoke up for me. There's just a lot of love and support. Yeah. Um, and so what are your next steps? So, you know, we're not we're not gonna stop fighting this. I'm not gonna be intimidated by Round Manual or Board of Education. Um, you know, there's a petition that keeps going around that has over three thousand signatures. We're gonna be I'm sure a lot of parents and teachers and activists will be speaking at the Board of Education next week. And then there's also May 1st, you know. So yeah. May 1st, there'll be a huge rally and protest all across Chicago, I'm sure all across the country. And we need to show them that we're not afraid and we're going to show up in mass numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about the planning for, for May 1st. Um, so... You know, schools have started organizing. They're getting their teachers and parents to go on buses um, to the rallies downtown. Um, I wouldn't doubt if there were even a lot of students going. You know, the day without an immigrant, that was a few months ago, SSA, though, we had hundreds of students that were gone. Um, right. You know, that either they went to the protests or stayed home. And so that was within only a few days' notice. So I imagine May 1st will be even bigger. Is the, the union going on strike or no? 
No, we're not going on strike. Um, but there will be massive amounts of people at the rallies and protesting. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, we'll we'll have to see if 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 the board of education comes back saying they're going to cut our schools three weeks short. You know, they're closing down the schools June first. Who knows what could happen? That was Sarah Chambers, and we will have more information about her fight at the Descent website. Silicon Valley executives pride themselves on being a truly global industrial enterprise. So the May 1st protests will put their liberal cosmopolitan values to the test. As our former co-producer Josh Idelson reports at Bloomberg News, big tech companies in the Bay Area are under pressure from unions to support the immigrant workers they employ, including their many low-wage contract laborers working in their offices as security guards, drivers, and cafeteria staff. They will be going to protest Trump by staying away from work on May 1st, and they want their employers to give them the green light and support them, and at the very least, vow not to retaliate against them for taking this direct action. Uh, So far, Facebook has agreed not to penalize workers for refusing to come into work that day. Um, The community groups supporting the workers are focused on the tech sector, but their struggle parallels the dilemma facing many workplaces. Uh, where workers are preparing for mass strikes on May Day and employers are in something of a legal bind because they're being asked to shoulder the legal risk of publicly standing in solidarity with their workers or at the very least not uh, helping expose them to deportation proceedings. Uh, On the other hand, um, the legal risk that they are negotiating right now as employers is, of course, far less than the legal risks that these immigrants are taking on by defying Trump and declaring their right to remain in this country. The workers, many of whom are represented by Unite Here or SEIU, two unions which have been out in force opposing Trump since the campaign season, are now pressuring Apple and others to follow Facebook and to match the rhetoric opposing Trump's Muslim ban and other policies that they've objected to publicly by living up to their social responsibility values. Silicon Valley firms often talk a good game about corporate social responsibility, but as we've often seen, the tech sector is not immune to the conventional anti-union low-road practices of regular old companies. As Denise Solis of SEIU on the West Coast warned, the tech giants are on notice as workers are sending a message to employers that this is not the time for them to take advantage of this situation and act irresponsibly, unquote, toward their immigrant workers. So we'll see on the day without immigrants whether they care more about their people than their profit. The building trades are not known for being the most welcoming places for women, but the Ironworkers International Union has set out to change that with a new policy that grants six months of paid maternity leave. Of course, belabored listeners probably know that the best way for women to get better pay and benefits has been for a long time to join a union, not to quote-unquote lean in. But it is still nice to see parental leave, a subject on which the United States lags far behind most other developed nations, prioritized as a way to hang on to talented tradeswomen. Ironworking is hard on the body and particularly hard on a pregnancy, so the leave is particularly designed to make sure that people are not putting their health at risk in order to try to maintain a paycheck. 
The leave policy compares favorably with those at high-end tech companies known for their, quote, generous benefits. But like those companies, it stemmed from iron workers realizing that women workers leave jobs when they don't have parental leave. Shocking. In other words, it's the kind of policy that recognizes that trained, skilled workers are valuable and should be treated as such. While the iron workers president hopes that the new policy will be a model for the rest of the trades, and it has certainly gotten a lot of press, it's worth noting that for many other industries, workers are still seen as expendable and interchangeable, and the best way to make sure that more people have parental leave would be to make it the law of the land. This week, my feature story at The Nation is out on the Carrier, Rexnord, and Sumco plants in Indianapolis, Indiana. We have discussed the Carrier plant and Trump's, quote, saving of the jobs there on this show before, but I wanted to get at something deeper than a mission-accomplished press conference. I spent a week last month in Indianapolis with Chuck Jones and the workers of United Steelworkers Local 1999, and today we're bringing you some of the conversations I had with those workers. First up is Local 1999 President Chuck Jones, a career-long worker at Rexnord, and the object of, maybe you heard of it, a few angry Trump tweets. Trump had numerous times has said that if he was president, that uh, Carrier would not be leaving his country and, right. and they would stay here. And so when he got elected, uh, I got hammering him pretty good because he made them campaign promises. And I said, well, you know, uh, he made these promises, he ought to, ought to uphold them. So I'm talking to the Washington Post one time on the phone, and uh, this was after Trump and Pence had came into town. and. Right did their, their thing, and I said it was a dog and pony show, and uh, that Trump lied his ass off, and I almost threw up in my mouth, and the guy said, well, uh, can I quote you on that? I said, yeah, whatever I tell you, you can quote <laughs> me on it. So anyway, that came out the next day. Well, then at that point in time, CNN and MSNBC, they're, they're wanting to talk to me. Yeah. So. They, they come over here, and this particular day, you know, I spent about 14 hours over here. I got home about 8 o'clock, and I was going to kick back and watch some basketball. Yeah. And I no more walked in the door, and a good friend of mine, which happens to be the uh, Indiana State AFL-CIO president, Brett Voorhees, he called me, and he said, Hey, he said, uh, Trump's tweeting some bad shit about you. Well, I started laughing, and he said, Well, I'm serious. I said, well, what's he saying? So then he told me, and I started laughing again. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, at that point in time, uh, my phone started going wild. Everybody, uh, the local media and everybody else was calling to get a, a statement from me. And then I ended up back up on uh, Anderson Cooper and a couple different shows. But anyway, then Trump, at some point in time, tweeted out the second one. and. Uh, you know, to be quite honest, you know, I'm not no macho man by no means, but I've been doing this job for over 30 years. So, you know, you, you get used to, you know, people being critical of you or whatever. And yeah. what Trump said about me didn't face me a bit. Yeah. His opinion, you know, of, um, you know, what I do for this local union and for the labor movement, uh, I don't put a whole hell of a lot of faith in anything he says. Right. So. You know, I, you know, it wasn't that I was crushed or, you know, devastated. And then, so anyway, this goes on that evening till probably, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So I came in the next day and we had 
three secretaries, uh, you know, answering the phone. And in the course of three or four days, we probably got, oh, well, well over 2,000 phone calls, uh, probably over 2,000 emails. Uh, and I got a box of uh, cards that we've been saving on people's uh, comments and stuff. But overwhelmingly, by a huge majority, it was very nice people uh, reaching yeah. out, saying, "Hey, thank you." Yeah. And you know, they they weren't labor people, and, and, and you know, we, we you know, I'm 65 years old. Hell, I never have got flowers. People, uh, within a couple of days, I got three different bouquets of flowers sent in here. Yeah. People were sending in candy. They were sending in the call care packages, had chips and all kind of snacks in. People were, were calling and, uh, you know, I really appreciate it. Now we got some, and I'll show you all of them if you want to look at them yes. at some point in time. Some of them that were kind of hateful, but they were funny, you yeah. know. And I, I, you know, I got some hateful phone calls and uh, some people were making some threats and, you know, okay, you know, fine, you know. but. Uh, it was a zoo around here for three days, and then it kind of slowed down, but uh, uh, I don't regret saying what I said, and, you know, uh, you know, I wasn't misquoted by no means. You know, maybe I, uh, I could have, or maybe should have, I don't know, toned it down a little bit, hell, I don't know, but, you know, knowing what him and Pence did, yeah. let me tell you the story on that, okay? Yeah. We, you know, we've got word that Trump and, and uh, the UTC, which is a parent company, yeah. were, were having meetings, okay, uh, about what they could do. Now, first of all, UTC has over five billion in military contracts, okay. So nobody will admit to this, but uh, my feel is that Trump reached out to him and said, "Hey." You know, you're going to move this plant to Monterey, Mexico, and according to your own figures, you're saving $65 million a year, right. you know, due to cheaper labor. Now you've got five, over $5 billion in military contracts. You might want to reconsider your thought process and see about what you could do because, you know, you could lose billions in order to save millions. You know, they're, they're not going to admit that. But anyway, it got worked out. And I'm very appreciative that 730 of our people's jobs are going to remain here in this country. Uh, and, and he's the one that, that was able to get that done. So him and Pence come into town. And uh, they toured the plant. And we were invited uh, to come on over and listen to him. But about an hour and a half... Prior to him speaking, yeah. we met with a company, and we was hearing that Trump had saved 1,100 jobs. So we met with a company and said, "Hey, you know, what's a breakdown of these jobs? You know, he saved 1,100 jobs. Well, there's going to be 730 union jobs remain. There's going to be about another 70 supervisory, clerical, office people that they'll remain." I said, well, that's 800. Yeah. Where do you get the 1,100? Well, that's the research and development. Yeah. I said, well, wait a minute. You guys announced 
when you made the announcement of the plant closure, them jobs were not leaving this country. Well, yeah. I said, so them numbers aren't 1,100 that, that he worked out to keep. Yes. Now, and the people on the plant, they thought with 1,100 jobs that he was reporting on, yeah. uh, that they probably was going to have a job. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they had about 100 of the carrier employees in, and Trump and Pence got up there and talked about how wonderful UTC was yeah. and that they sat down with them and was able to save 1,100 jobs. Now, I was sitting there and about four or five other union people with me, we knew what the numbers were, right. but the people that sat in there from carrier uh, employees and the people out in the shop floor, they didn't know. So they put this uh, presentation on for, I don't know, 45 minutes. Never ever said anything about 550 people yeah. still losing their jobs to Monterey, Mexico. All they talk about is, uh, he worked it out, we're going to save 1,100 jobs. Yeah. So it was sickening what it was. I mean, the whole thing was sickening uh, because I'm sitting there thinking, okay, UTC is so wonderful. These are the same dirty son of a bitches that are sending 700 uh, jobs from Huntington, Indiana, right. which is represented by the IBEW. Uh, we don't represent those folks. And then another 550 that him and Pence, either one, are talking about. Yeah. All they talk about is we saved 1,100 jobs, and it really got stupid. Trump went out, him and Pence, and did a tour of the plant. Yeah. They watched the people make furnaces. Yeah. They watched them. And all through Trump's campaign, he always referred to Carrier making air conditioners. Okay. So he goes out and he watches them make furnaces. He comes into that meeting and he said, I tell you what, we was able to work out a deal to keep 1,100 jobs here. The, the, the company's going to invest $16 million in the facility. Well, you'll produce more air conditioners than ever been produced here. So I nudged the corporate guy, which don't like me and I don't like him. He was sitting in front of me. I said, that's fucking one. Because they don't make fun. They don't make air conditioners. If you make, you know, uh, yeah, you know, we're going to produce more air conditioners than ever been uh, produced here. Yeah, that's one. And, you know, he didn't appreciate that. I, I didn't give a shit about that. But it, they put that whole dog and pony show on. Yeah. So people were, were yelling, the carrier people, oh, thank you, Mr. Trump. Thank you, uh, you know, Mr. Pence. Oh, we love you. I thought, geez, this is sickening. But anyway, I'm in there. I got to sit through this shit. So it was over with. And Trump and Pence come out in the crowd, and I don't know Trump. Yeah. You know, I don't know if he knows who in hell I am. Probably not. I know Pence because I haven't had a good relationship with him over the years. Yeah. But, you know, people were coming up wanting to shake their hands. I wanted to get the hell out of there. Yeah. So I went ahead and left. And uh, then the next day, what we, what we did was we put the word out in a plant. Yeah. Irregardless of what he said, the number's not 1,100. Yeah. So then people got questioned that. Well, that's, he said 1,100. I said he's counting in the research and development yeah. jobs. Yeah. You can't count that in. You mean there's still going to be a layoff? I said, yeah. He didn't mention, nor did Pence or anybody else, 550 jobs going to Mexico. 
oh, you're bullshitting me. So they start going up to the company. The company said, yeah, you know, we're still losing 550. And so that's what really pissed me off. You know, grateful that he he got involved and and was able to keep the jobs here that are are staying. But, you know, be honest with people. Don't put the person on a roller coaster ride and think that he's going to have a job. And and people went home that evening, told their spouses, I'm going to have a job, I'm going to have a job, only to find out, no. Uh, yeah. 550 of them still go to Monterey, Mexico. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. and what it is, Carrier and Rex Nord both yeah. have been here in this city for probably 90 years. Not in their current locations, but they were in other parts of the city. Carrier and Rex Nord both. Long, uh, long, long term employees or employers here. Uh, Carrier and Rex Nord both. Very profitable. Uh, we never had an issue uh, that they weren't making a good profit. Yeah. Uh, both of them, because of our people, achieved the highest quality award for manufacturing furnaces at Carrier and manufacturing bearings at Rexnord. Probably both of them uh, leading uh, manufacturer in their particular field in this country. So it wasn't about profitability, it wasn't about quality, it boils down to the average wage at Carrier is probably 23. The average wage at Rex North is 25. And like I said, very profitable, uh, very good quality, but we can't compete with the $3 Mexican workers. Yeah. So consequently, uh, we lose our jobs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I had no problem with these companies making money. Hell, we want them to make money. Yeah. You know, we want them to be. Uh, you know, to the point where you know they, they're making money because uh, they're going to keep on hiring and they're going to uh, stay here in this country. But now what we're seeing is they're willing to risk everything they've got yeah. in order to move the jobs out of this country because uh, of three dollars an hour and no benefits. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, when is enough enough? I mean, I don't know. I mean, and so. Trump heads that haven't made any noise about trying to save the jobs at Rexnord. Well, uh, Trump came out at one point in time and he said, and Rexnord, which is located uh, by a carrier, uh, they're firing, his words was like, to the extent, they're firing 300 people, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So then people start calling me, well, what do you mean it ain't going to happen? I said, well, I didn't say it, he did. Yeah. Well, he said that, and I said, well, I guess that means they ain't going. Well, then their CEO says, we're moving. And, uh, you know, yeah. regardless of what President Trump says, you know, we're, we're going to Monterey, Mexico. we got a plant built there, and we're going. But, you know, let me say this. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a lifelong uh, Democrat. Yeah. Okay, you know. Uh, I see Bernie on your wall. Yeah, you know, Bern, you know me and Bernie did, developed a... Uh, personal relationship, uh, you know. In fact, I ran into Senator Donnelly Saturday uh, at an event, and uh, I talked to him for a while. And he said, "Hey," he said, uh, "Bernie told me the other day if I run across you, tell you hi, you know." And so Bernie calls once in a while, or I'll call him. So most politicians, for the most part, are phonies, you know. <laughs> I've dealt with. Oh, Chuck, it's so good to see you. Bullshit. 
They don't care about me. All they, they, they like is our local's got 3,000 members. That's a pretty good voting block. And our local's got money to give to them. So anyway, I, you know, I'm not real fond of politicians. You know, they're a necessary evil yeah. that uh, I got to deal with and we got to deal with. But yeah. I'd have had no problem if my person, which was Bernie, yeah. uh, he got, you know, he got cheated out of the primary. That's my my story. But anyway, if somebody else would have came in and uh, would have been acceptable, Hillary Clinton. You know, and I love all women, so it wasn't because I'm anti-women by no means. Yeah. I think it's time that we have a, a woman president, yeah. not her. Yeah. Her and, and Bill Clinton, I could give a shit what he did with Monica Lewinsky. That didn't affect me a damn bit, but when he gave us NAFTA, and I've seen these jobs leave this country, and she was first lady, and she was talking about how great NAFTA was and how wonderful it's going to be, and we lose these jobs, and then she takes a stand on TPP. It's going to be the gold uh, trade standard. It, it's wonderful. Until she finally realized, well, she's going to need labor's money in order to run for president. And then she was against it, uh, and her logic was, well, once I read the whole bill, I realized it really wasn't good. Well, so there wasn't any, there wasn't any trust for her. So, you know, I... Uh, I've said it that uh, the Democrats invited me to speak at their conference in Detroit here about a month ago. We had a flawed candidate, you know, and they can say all they want. No, that wasn't the case. But as far as working people feel, we had a flawed candidate yeah. and in Hillary Clinton. Now, our people in the past, most of the time, are going to vote for the Democratic nominee. Uh, our local... Uh, endorsed Bernie Sanders in the primary. I've never seen people as fired up over a candidate here in this local as I did for for uh, Senator Sanders. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And you know, I didn't know, but a lot of the women were for Sanders, yeah. and I'm talking about strong. Uh, women far as in the labor movement that you would think, okay, they're going to go Hillary because she's a female. Uh, they, they were behind Bernie, and it was just unbelievable the support Bernie had in this local. Well, uh, what happened was happened, and then it, we end up in uh, Trump and Hillary. Yeah. Then I started hearing a lot of our people really were drinking Trump's Kool-Aid. They were, you know, he was saying the right things. You know, well, we need to keep jobs here in this country. Yeah, hell, well, I agree with with all of that. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon we start hearing more and more, I'm voting for Trump, I'm voting for Trump. Yeah. So our local decided we was going to stay neutral. Yeah. And only thing I ask the people to do is if you're going to go ahead and vote for Donald Trump, please vote for the, the Democrats, the governor, mm -hmm. so forth, so on. Yeah. So in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Trump got a lot of people that from labor, working people that Republicans don't normally get. So, tell me about your relationship with Pence going back. Pence is a right-wing fanatic, yeah. uh, you know, on all kind of different issues, whether it's gay rights, women's rights. And 
as much as he was to the right, I am to the left. But Pence was completely to the right, and uh, he restricted a lot of things. So right. now all of a sudden, we got the carrier deal come up. So, Director Mike Millsap, he is the director over for the steelworkers over Indiana and Illinois. Uh, when the carrier deal came up, Mike sent a letter to Mr. Pence's office asking for a, a meeting for me and him, and never got any response. So, uh, one day we got tipped off that Pence was going to meet with the UTC executives, and it was probably about eight o'clock. Yeah. So me and Kelly, the business rep, we gathered up a handful of people. We ran up to uh, the state house where Governor Pence's office is at. We had some signs, "Keep it made in America," and, and some carrier signs and shit. All the news media was up there, and uh, we was you know we saw the carrier execs walk in. And they went behind closed doors, and about a half hour later, they came out. And uh, Pence come on out. We're out there holding up the signs right beside him, and he uh, told the news media, "Hey, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. Uh, the reason these jobs are leaving this country is because of the regulatory uh, regulations that." Uh, Obama and the people in Washington D.C. have imposed on these companies. Uh, I knew I knew that was bullshit because right. Donnelly had really been focusing in on that. So uh, you know, and so Pence gets up there. Well, you know, even though under the great leadership of the union and Chuck Jones, oh, here we go, <laughs> this phony fucking shit. <laughs> So, you know, and so he gets up there and he, you know, he, you know, yeah, there ain't nothing Indiana can do, there ain't nothing I can do, you know, uh, these jobs are going to Mexico. So Pence lanes over to me, he said, hey, so when this is over, I'd like for you to come on back. I said, I'll come on back, but I'm going to bring uh, people I got with me. He said, well, all right. So anyway, he, the news conference got over. Yeah. We went on back and it was, like I say, about seven, eight of us. Yeah. So we sit down, and the first thing that they do is Pence has got them taking pictures, like, you know, we're getting together for a fucking family reunion or something. Um, so anyway, he said, to, you know, well, there ain't nothing I can do. It's all regulatory. I said, that's bullshit. That ain't true. Yeah, it is. I said, no, it's not. But anyway, um, when I was talking to Pence, I'm going to let this out. I said, hey, I said, why didn't you respond back? to Director Mike Millsap's request for a meeting. He said, I never got one. I said, yeah, yeah, he sent it to you. He said, he asked his staff, did we get a letter from Mike Millsap wanting a meeting? They said, uh-uh, Governor, no you didn't. So at that point in time, I shut the hell up. I thought, well, maybe I misunderstood something. So I get back here and I call the director. I said, hey, Mike, I said, you said that you uh, sent the Governor a request for a meeting a month ago and we ain't got no response. He's, I, said, I said, they're all saying they never got anything. He said, bullshit. He said, I got the receipt that they signed off on it. Yeah. I said, send it to me. So he sent it down here. So then I got the news media back together, and I said, Pence and his people are saying that they didn't get any requests for a, a meeting. They're a fucking liar right here on such such day. They signed off on it. Yeah. They won't give us a meeting. So... 
that point in time, that pissed Pence off. So uh, he got a hold of the director and said, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll meet with you guys. Uh, you pick out whatever Monday, the next three Mondays is good for you. Mike said, I'll tell you what, you know, I'll send you a letter. So Mike sent him a letter saying any of the dates, it will work, whatever will work for them, the best is fine with us. Yeah. Three different dates. We never heard nothing back from them. Yeah. Now, you know, I said this and I'll say it again. Pence was the type of governor that if something horrible was happening, and you know, it's horrible when you're losing 1,400 jobs, that you would think that at least he'd address it and say, hey, this is really a horrible situation, what's happening here in Indiana, uh, Indianapolis, to 1,400 people losing their livelihood. N never talked about it, never mentioned it, but you let, uh, when he was governor, you let somebody open up a tire shop, for example, across the railroad tracks, and they're going to uh, employ three people. Pence is knocking the cameras down in order to get in front of them and say, how uh, he's growing jobs here in this state. Right. So, you know, he, he's a hypocritical son of a bitch on shit like that. You know, the stuff that we're losing, uh, he, he, he wanted to run away with, and some of these jobs that, and you know, they're saying, I guess I gotta believe him, I ain't got the facts to say otherwise. He's saying he created 100,000 jobs here in Indiana. Okay, you know, uh, and, you know, that very well could be true. Some of them are high-tech jobs, and, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of any jobs, but our people never will be able to get, I mean, you know. Uh, and a lot of them have to be, you got to be able to be well-versed saying, do you want french fries with that? Yeah. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of them, them jobs. There's a lot of warehousing jobs. Yeah. And they pay $10 an hour, and not a living wage. But, you know, uh, it sounds good when you say you created 100,000 jobs. Yeah. So, yeah. what have the last couple of contract bargaining sessions been like with Carrier? Uh, not too bad, uh, for the most part. You're familiar with two-tier wage systems? Yeah. Okay. Six years ago, a company comes to the table and they say, hey, uh, you know, we're making money. And, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, we're paying a lot more money than a lot of our competitors. In order to remain competitive, you know, we got to have a, a second tier. So, quite naturally, the union, we tell them, no, you know, we're not interested in that. So we go through, I don't know, 10, 15 bargaining sessions, and each time the company's got that proposal on there. Well, hell, companies know they ain't completely stupid that if you give a good enough contract to the people who can vote, which are the people that currently work there, that they might not like it because somebody coming in uh, after the after the contract's agreed to is going to come in at uh, three, four, five, six, seven dollars less an hour, long as they're taken care of. So consequently, uh, the the two tier proposal was on their final, last, best offer, and but you know overall the contract was pretty good. Well, people voted in, so then. Uh, company goes wild and, and they start hiring a bunch of people and so consequently uh, you got people working side by side and uh, some of them making uh, five six seven dollars an hour less than somebody else yeah. 
And so the company actually saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, or maybe millions. I don't know what the figure is on uh, a, a you know a lesser wage. So, uh, but far as contract for the people that that are there with, it's fairly good. Yeah. But you know, you never feel good coming out of negotiations knowing that the contract's going to pass and it's got a two-tier yeah. proposal. And I mean, you you, you feel feel helpless on that, and that's what we did. And, you know, they, they accepted it. Yeah, what about Rex Nord? Uh, Rex Nord, uh, he's a retiree from Rex Nord, too. His name is Frank Kortoska. You know, I like it. Frank. Uh, I like you for nothing. I got a son still works there. He's going to lose his job. Yeah, so, <laughs> son that's married and got a couple children, so, uh, you know, it's a good thing that Frank's rich, so he can take care of it. <laughs> right, Frank? Yeah, I must have hit the powerball and you forgot to give me my money, though. <laughs> but Frank was there about 40 years. Uh, I've been there. I just turned 48 last year. Even though I've been over here over 30, I'm still uh, listed as an employee of Rex Nord. Uh, got out of high school in January of 69 because I was uh, had enough credits. And uh, I know I wasn't gonna go to college. Uh, didn't have the I money. Get drafted like me, then, <laughs> Oh, you know, I, I missed out on that. I, thank God, I missed out on that Vietnam shit. You know. But anyway, I, I just turned seventeen in August of '68. So I'm working for Kentucky Fried Chicken at the grand rate of a dollar thirty-five an hour. You know. Yeah. Oh, you can eat. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was probably getting in 25 hours a week. And you know, my buddies, they, you know, a couple of buddies of mine, they had worked over there. At, it was called Link Belt at the time. Yeah. That's what it's primarily known as for us old people. Yeah. They said, well, come over to Link Belt. And I said, well, I'm only 17. They said, what the hell, why about your age? So I went over in February and... Uh, they hired me yeah. at the starting rate of two dollars and twenty-one cents. Now I went to high school for eight years or twelve years. I went to school for twelve years, yeah. and I had achieved uh, a job at, at Link Belt as a janitor. Yeah. But I was making two twenty-one, so I hit the mother load. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I didn't know anything about, for the most part, anything about. Uh, you get free health care, you're going to have a pension, you know, this is all the benefits, you know. Yeah. I could care less you know, how much you're paying me, you know. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to get time and a half, you're going to get double time. But anyway, uh, the plant's always been profitable. I mean, they might have had over all the years I've been there, they might have had some bad years, I don't know, but it never was an issue where... Uh, we had to take any pay cuts or or any of that. I mean, we well, uh, lost a few benefits over the years. Yeah, you know, the holiday pay. Yeah, but you know, a, a fairly stable employer, uh, Rex Norton Carrier, both that uh, you know, people thought that, and you know, in factory work, you're not going to get rich. I mean, you're going to be able to. You know, have a, a new car every so often and buy a modest home and 
maybe take a family on vacation every so often, but you know, you're not gonna uh, ever be wealthy by no means, and you know, you're gonna get by, and that's what most of us did for all yeah, these years. No rainy days on us, so. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but you know, uh, Rex Nord, uh, corporate greed. I mean, it's just pure and simple that, you know, and I know I wore this out, and I'm, you know, you'll probably get tired of me saying it, you know, if it was because of the quality of the product and they came to us and we couldn't we couldn't improve it or if it was they were having profitability issues and they came to us and we couldn't fix it and they decided to leave wouldn't like it but you'd kind of sort of understand yeah. uh, but uh, it's not neither of either and people lose their livelihood due to no fault of their own and you know, I'm gonna be all right. You know, I'm gonna retire. Uh, you know, uh, I, I could stick around another year, but I decide I'll go ahead and go when the plant goes. Yeah. So I'm leaving. I'll be all right, and some of the other folks will be all right. Some of the people that you got on that list there, yeah. they're not gonna be all right. Yeah. You know, some of them on there are between uh, 40 and 55. Yeah. They're screwed. Uh, First of all, you know, even though there's all kind of educational opportunities out there, hell, they've been out of high school for 20 years. They're probably, you know, ain't going to go back into that. Uh, they're old enough. Who in the hell wants to hire them? So consequently, what happens? And uh, there's a good article in the Indianapolis Star about a guy named John Feltner uh, that's on your list. Uh, he went through a plant closure somewhere else before. Uh, he lost his cars, he lost his house, and these folks at Carrier and Rexnord are going to do the same. These people have worked uh, and made these companies profitable, and they're going to lose their jobs. They're going to either run out of unemployment, or uh, maybe they might have a, a warehouse job making $10 an hour, a job at, uh, saying you want french fries with that for another $8 an hour, they're going to come up short and they're not going to have any benefits. So pretty soon they lose their cars. Pretty soon they get their house gets repoed on. And then pretty soon, you know, right around by that time, their spouse pretty well bails out and says, what the hell, you know, couldn't stand the son of a bitch anyway. And we ain't got no cars, we ain't got no house, I'm out of here. And then that same person that might have worked for 20, 25 years, they kill themselves. Pure and simple, you know. And nobody wants to hear that whole, you know, all these jobs here in Indiana, you know, everybody's going to be all right. Bullshit, they ain't going to be all right. You know, and, you know, I, I hope to God that uh, that don't happen, but it's going to happen, you know. And these are ordinary people that happen to be represented by a union. This ain't an attack on unions. It's an attack on working class people that are represented by a union. You know, they're ordinary uh, neighbors, uh, citizens or whatever. Now over Carrier and Rexnord, they're located about a mile from each other. I encourage both of you to go over and drive up and down the neighborhoods. Just take some pictures. They're, they're modest homes and probably quite a few of our people live close to the facilities. And then come back in about three or four years, take pictures. You're going to see for sale, foreclosed and all that. They're going to lose their houses because there's not $25 an hour jobs these people's going to be able to go to. They're, 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 they're screwed. Yeah. And you know what? 
nobody gives a shit because the job of a CEO is to enhance the shareholders' profitability and that's what they do and the shareholders are going to make a little more money and that's great for this country. Bullshit. That was Chuck Jones, president of USW Local 1999. I also spoke with John Feltner, a worker at Rexnord who will be losing his job when the plant closes. You know, Rexnord, you got to work a year before you get any paid time off. Uh, again, the mandatory overtime. It was anywhere from, from 8 to 10 hours a day. And like I said, it, for a while, it was seven days a week. Um, you know, it's just something. Money was good. Yeah. I mean, overtime is really where we make our money. Yeah. So, um, you know, no complaints there. But the way that that things were were done at Rex Nord with the mandatory overtime and just overall treatment of the people. Yeah. Um, it caused me to get involved with the union. Yeah. So after uh, about a year. Uh, we had an election. I decided to run for vice president, and uh, now I'm currently there as well. But uh, you know, when you spend a lot of time in a plant like that, you, you, you're also taking away time from your family. Right. So um, you know, it, it's catch twenty two. But again, the money's good. And, you know, you make decisions on, on what you need to do. Yeah. Saw a lot of good people get walked out of there. Yeah. Uh, when they implemented the two-tier system in uh, October of 13, yeah. and I, 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 I'd, I'd seen that before. Even at Navistar, we started off at 70% of rate. But we, mm -hmm. we knew at the end of that period... We could be at, t I mean, we're, we're right. at top pay. Yeah. Here you could never get there. Right. And I had a real issue with that. So you just missed the... Just missed it. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, when, when, when I hired in, they were getting ready to go into negotiations. Uh, when they started negotiations, I hadn't had my, I didn't have my probationary period in. Yeah. So uh, other guys was like, you know, well, what are we going to do? I said, what do you mean? Well, what if they go out on strike? Yeah. Then we walk out with them. Well, we don't have our 90 days. And even the union said, you don't have your 90 days and they could fire you. Yeah. So, well, they just have to fire me because there's no way I can cross that picket line. That's not who I am. And, uh, but fortunately, I mean, we didn't go out on strike. Yeah. So it, it didn't become an issue. You know, I mean, I'm fourth generation union. My father's union, my grandfather, my great grandfather. Um, you know, that's just that's just what we believe in, I, and that was instilled in me at, at, at Navistar. I was always involved in local, not to this level that I am here, but uh, you know, anybody talk to me say, yeah, he's a good union man. You know. Yeah. Um. He said there was stuff about. How folks were being treated that made you get more, even more involved in the union. Talk mm -hmm. about that. Uh, you know, I mean, um, if you were scheduled mandatory overtime and and, and you know you didn't come in, 
you know, there's the, you, you got into steps of discipline. Um, some of that's tied <coughs> with, with other things mm-hmm. in the plan. You know, if you walk away from your your work area early, uh, if they come through and say they can't find you, you're, you're in the bathroom. Yeah. Somebody might say, well, he's been away for a long time, ride him up. Um, there's lots of things to impose discipline over there if, if, if they wanted to. Yeah. And, and they did for a while because the two tier came in. Yeah. I started seeing a lot of one tier guys getting paper on them and getting fired. Yeah. And I seen some good people go out of there. And you know, I've seen guys that didn't want to work too. So yeah, you know, those you can't. I mean, you're gonna have those everywhere. Yeah. But. Uh, you know, you still have to represent them the best that you can. So, so they were trying to get rid of the higher paid guys so they could bring in the That's exactly tier. what it seemed like. Yeah, yeah. they knew um, they had uh, they had a difference in pay there. Like I said, I, I, I saw that and I, and I saw some things going on in, in, in the union locally and, and I said, you know what, the only way to change it is to get involved. It's taken a while, but it's starting starting to come around. The way I'd never worked for steelworkers before, and I'd always heard yeah. steelworkers were a strong union. Um, but when I got in there, I I saw some things that you know that, that bothered me, yeah. and it, and it's it, it comes down to the people. And so, uh, you know, I had a lot of people talk to me and say, "Hey, you know, you're you're a union man." Yeah, I am. And this is how we change it. Maybe you should run for office. Okay, I did. And, you know, I got in. Um, When I talk about the union, there's good things and bad things, don't get me wrong. But to me, the good outweigh the bad. So would would I suggest anybody get into the union? Absolutely. go back and look through history you know your seven day you know your five day work week paid holidays vacation uh, maternity leave people don't realize that all that came from you safety in the workplace Um, I mean people owe a lot to unions and and people way before me and and today stood out there and got those fought and got those rights and Right now, I've, I've even got people on my plans. Man, what's the union going to do for me? The union's already done for you. It's time for you to keep it, keep it rolling. Yeah, I was talking to Chuck about the uh, right to work bill mm-hmm. and, uh, a few years ago. Said they lost less people than they thought they would. Right now, Across I got local. I got one guy in, in my plan. Yeah. He's a senior man in the plan. The senior man in the plan, he opted out. But I'll give him credit for one thing. He's not training. I mean, what does that tell you? So are they going to go down to Mexico to train Yeah, yes, yes. They've Actually, we got one guy down there right now um, who used to be, I, I considered him a friend. Um, yeah, he left. A week ago Sunday. 
So, yeah, he's down there right now. And when I found out that he was training, you know, a lot of people have quit talking to those people. They just don't associate with him. Um, I was giving it a cold shoulder because I don't believe in it, you know. And then finally, you know, realizing he's, you know, he's a buddy. And I just stopped him. I caught his eye and stopped him. I said, look, I don't hate you. I just hate what you're doing. And that's the last words I said to him. And just kept walking. Um, he's down there right now. And with that, if they go, if they go to Monterey or Texas or wherever they're going, um, those people, company expedited their passports and all that. They, uh, this particular guy, they paid him a week to stay home. Basically, gave him a week's vacation. I heard rumors that there's. There was tensions, and he just kind of wanted to ease out, so he snuck out really without anybody really knowing where he went. So they paid him to stay home a week. They flew him down there. He's down there to train for two weeks. He comes back, stays home with his family, paid for another week. He goes back down, two weeks of training, and he's done. At that time, during that time he's training, he gets $10 on the hour, and... It's a $5,000 bonus. So that's like a couple of months added to whatever severance you get, extra money. Pretty much. Pretty much. When I leave this country and go down there and train, no way. No way. Can't fathom it. And, you know, and I'll, I'll say again, I have no animosity towards the Mexican people at all. None. I know these people in there are, are trying to do a job. I know they're trying to support their families. But even they have said, we really can't live on $3 an hour. So, again, they're being exported. That was John Feltner, and last but not least, I spoke with Gary Cantor, another Rexnord worker, about his time there and the Trump situation. So much wind has been taken from the sales of so many people in there that participation levels down. Um, so it, it I, I just don't know that what else could be done that we haven't already done, you yeah. know. Um, we keep talking. Yeah. You know, we keep doing our interviews and things like that, but um, yeah. there's only so many times that the people that travel down that road want to travel down that road and honk and be, you know what I mean? You can only do it so many times, and those people are like, okay, fine, yeah. we get it, you know, stop making me late for work or get home. Or um, the One thing that I think people would still like to do, uh, I just don't know, how many would would be up for it, but to um, go to the headquarters in Milwaukee. Mm, yeah. Um, but then again, you know, people at this point, you know, the machines are going out. Um, Team Monterey, as they call them, uh, our Mexican counterparts, are in our plant right now being trained by our own people yeah. to do our jobs. That's pretty deflating. 
and I think a lot of hope is lost yeah. at this point. Yeah. And to go up there with just you know three, four, five, ten people, you know, uh, versus, mm-hmm. I mean, then they, then they see others, well, you yeah. you guys aren't even together on this anymore, you yeah. know. So I just I don't know how effective it would be, but uh, you still have those that that want to do it. Just not not enough. I, I don't believe. I, I think people are just about. They're beaten down. That's what it does to you. <sighs> Having to train the people has been a big blow. Yeah, I. That, that's that's such a big blow. I mean, um, President Trump has said, and and based a lot of his campaign around this issue. Yeah. And he has come right out and said, for one, um, if and when I'm elected, you know, these companies will not leave. Yeah. Um, well, they are. And he said that uh, our American people will not train their replacement workers. Well, as far as I know, Rex Nord is probably close to, if not the first company to come out and directly defy that. We are in their training, which is yeah. totally against what he said. Yeah. And again, when you don't see any action from that, knowing that he knows, we know that he knows. Yeah. And, and nothing, nothing. I mean, this, this man tweets his ass off, yeah. you know, and he's got no problem attacking. Uh, <laughs> And we, and we haven't seen that. So if you can't get support, you know, I'm sure a lot of people look at it this way. If you can't get his support with this going on. It seems like he's got a short attention span. It seems that way. And yeah. this coming from a registered Democrat that heard him yeah. and voted for him. Yeah based on the fact that we're w- what we were going through at the time. Yeah. And he was the one that was talking about it. Um, we're going to do something about it. Yeah. And uh, something that's, like I said, something's been needed to be done about it for 20 years now, and this man comes along who's not your typical politician. I mean, even his Republican counterparts didn't like him. So, yeah. I mean, you know, so I, get, I can do four years, so to speak, standing on my head. Yeah. Let's give this man a shot and see what happens. Well... We're not seeing anything. Not to say that he won't, but I know that he can and that he's not. And um, and, I, and I, I don't expect him to wave his magic wand and get it done, but yeah. he can work to bring our lawmakers together, our elected officials, our Senate and our, and our House together on this issue and get something done. And we're not seeing that. And that alone, I mean, again, that 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 deflates you. And it's and it's yeah. we're waiting. But we know that he knows. Yeah. And now at this point, to us anyway, he's letting something happen that he said wasn't going to happen. And that's the most powerful man in the free world. I would hope to think that we could trust him and believe what he says. Yeah. 
Yeah, because if he doesn't do anything about it, I mean, it's more of the same. I got to go out there and find another job, and I'll be damned if it won't be the third one that I'll lose. You know, like it's just going to keep happening to my family over and over again. Yeah. Which is exactly what stokes our fire. Yeah. You know, that that's what keeps us sitting down with you and yeah. um, trying to keep getting that word out there and get more people on board with that. But um, the ones we need to get on board, though, are the ones that we elect. And that was Gary Cantor of United Steelworkers Local 1999 at Rexnord in Indianapolis talking to Sarah Jaffe. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for... Arg! I wish I had written that. And the thing I wish I had written this week is Alicia Battisoni's right here in Descent Magazine. She talks about the universal basic income, which has been viewed by both the right and the left as one potential solution to the inequality crisis. But is a guaranteed welfare payment for every man, woman, and child really the socialist future we should all be striving for? She takes a deep dive into something that seems like a great idea on the surface, but you really have to follow the money. We've brushed on the concept of universal basic income, or UBI, uh, before on this show um, as one potential way out of the economic quagmire of uh, precarious work and chronic shortfalls in meeting basic needs in a neoliberal economy. And in communities where sustainable job opportunities are scarce and globalization has led to um, a hollowing out of the middle class. Uh, UBI is one way to restore some measure of economic stability. If work is decoupled from income, the logic goes, uh, then a universal basic income could help people cover basic living expenses so that they're less prone to impoverishment simply because they are out of work. But Battisoni warns that looking toward UBI as a cure-all is like praying for rain during a drought. It's great when it works, and when it fails, you tend to make things far, far worse, and you never really know if it was your prayer that helped or maybe just, you know, climate. That all sets the stage for uh, a battle between two different ideological approaches to how the UBI is constructed and how it is executed across society. Um, basic income, as Bettisoni explains, is uh, often posited as a, quote, post-ideological solution suited to a new era of politics. The odd confluence of interest from the left and right tends to be read as a sign that political positions can be eschewed in favor of rational compromise. But UBI's cross-ideological appeal is the bug, not the feature. But because uh, income is politically ambiguous, it also has the potential to act as a Trojan horse for the left or right. So UBI can be left, right, center, combination of both. It can be seen as extremely generous or extremely parsimonious. And its somewhat deceptive, non-ideological veneer resonates with the uh, neoliberalism schemes that have been used for global development in the past. The key is whether workers can depend on this as a true basic subsistence wage and whether they are really more in control of their lives. The latter two questions are more political than economic or philosophical. Rubii, at least in the U.S., is being experimented with primarily by the same techno-capitalist class that is responsible for ruining our jobs and eroding our labor rights in the first place. 
So why would we depend on them to pay us a living wage just for basically being alive? If we mean so little to them that they can suppress our workplace organizing or deny a living wage in exchange for labor in the workplace, why would we want to hand them more power to decide how we live during the rest of the day outside of working hours? Battisoni goes on to note that when historical recompense is at stake, UBI can be one relevant form of reparations. For example, a serious look at wages for housework, revisiting a movement that originated with a feminist civil rights demand on the patriarchy, or we can think about UBI as one component of reparations for centuries of slavery. But the prospects for undertaking these as realistic social programs would require a fundamental shift in our social priorities. Battisoni goes on to write, The left hasn't seriously organized around welfare rights for years, but in the coming years, it will be more important than ever to defend what remains of U.S. social provision, particularly given the nasty racial tack that fight will undoubtedly take. We can't defend welfare just as a backstop for the vulnerable and unlucky members of society or as a handout to the benighted poor but as a fundamental and universal good for all. Today's show focused on one group of workers highly fetishized and obsessed over by both parties while their real needs are ignored, factory workers. For ARG, I thought I'd look at the other group of workers obsessed over and ignored simultaneously, coal country workers. Sarah Jones is one of my new favorite writers, part of what I'm beginning to think of as a cohort of young, smart, labor-oriented women writers fighting back against all sorts of stereotypical garbage in the media. This piece, which she wrote with Laura Reston at the New Republic, is called Appalachia Needs Big Government, and it explains what the Appalachian Regional Commission is and why it exists, namely to create jobs in Appalachia where the coal mines have gone. It is not just coal, of course, that departed from Appalachia for even cheaper pastures. Manufacturing and tobacco farming have also declined sharply in the region, and even when coal was still booming during the 1960s when John F. Kennedy campaigned in Appalachia, he realized that poverty was still everywhere. The commission on Trump's budgetary chopping block was born out of a desire to alleviate that poverty and to create jobs that would allow local people to stay in their towns, while making it easier for those towns to be connected to the rest of the world. It built roads, supplied the internet, as well as grants for small business programs, and much more. If those programs get chopped, all Trump's promises to help the struggling region thought of only as coal country will quickly be proven wrong. Jones and Reston write, quote, By attacking ARC, Trump's proven that he and his handlers intend to govern mostly within established conservative parameters. Democrats should therefore respond with a two-pronged strategy, defend ARC and slam Trump's threats as proof he is no different from classic Republican budget cutters. Democrats have to enthusiastically promote social welfare as a tangible, necessary benefit to people's lives. If the Democrats don't learn lessons from this election about what the real issues are and how they really ought to be speaking to people, then we will continue to see people leaving the Democratic Party, Eller says. End quote. As I learned in Indianapolis, it's not the type of job so much as it's jobs that pay a decent wage that people want. And articles like this one remind us that there are many ways to do that without trying to go back to the past into jobs that were in many ways very hard on the body and hard on the environment. Instead of obsessing about the Panera Bread companies of the world or whatever suburban gobbledygook democratic so-called strategists are on about today, if we try to understand how to expand programs that provide real job opportunities, that would be a very good start for progressive politicians. 
That is all we have time for today. Thank you for tuning in, and a special thanks to our monthly supporters. You too can become a monthly sustaining member of Belabored at the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org, and get your very excellent Belabored tote bag. You can always tweet at us at hashtag Belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you're an iron worker or a brand worker in coal country or a factory town, if you're planning on striking for May Day. Thanks for sticking with us. We'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>